Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey, everyone. Welcome to episode 192 of the Independent Advisors podcast, where Matt Jessup and I, Mark McEvely, bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. So happy St. Patrick's Day, Matt. Happy St. Patty's Day, March Madness, banking crisis. Yeah, a lot going on right now lot going in, on, buddy. in the world. So uh, yeah, we'll, we'll dig into to all of that. But before we begin, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on March 16th. And this data is from YCharts. S&P 500 index down 0.2% for the month and up 3.1% for the year. The Dow Jones Industrial Average down 1.3% for the month and down 2.7% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 2.3% for the month and up 12% for the year. The Russell 2000 Small Cap Index down 6.5% for the month and up 0.9% for the year. And the Vanguard uh, All World X United States ETF down 1.7% for the month and up 2.1% for the year. Three-month treasury rate at 4.74%, the two-year treasury rate at 4.14%, and the 10-year treasury rate sitting at 3.56%. So uh, yields have definitely come in over uh, the past few weeks uh, due to the whole Silicon Valley bank crisis that we're going to get into here. Um, But it's been a pretty quick drop because, you know, rates were near 5% or just above 5% just about a week ago. Absolutely. These are moves in the bond market that people have not seen in about 30 years. Yeah. That's how uncommon these massive moves have been. Right. And what, you know, that means to us looking at it, and we're going to go over this, but, you know, bonds and interest rates have that inverse relationship, right? So when there's a large demand for bonds or people are buying, quote unquote, safety, yields are going to come down. Absolutely. So... Um, so obviously, we're, we're going to dedicate most of this podcast to you know what's happened over the past couple of weeks with uh, Silicon Valley Bank. Um, there are a couple other banks that had issues too, but just for simplicity purposes, we'll keep it uh, to Silicon Valley. But um, last <laughs> week, Matt, um, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation closed Silicon Valley Bank uh, and took control of its deposits. So. Silicon Valley Bank was, you know, a popular bank that tech startups used to house their cash. Uh, and like other other banks, uh, SVB, which I'll refer to that going forward, um, took customer deposits and put them in long-term treasury bonds, which, you know, are deemed, I think, by the general public on a as a quote-unquote safe investment. I'm not saying that it is or isn't, but there is risk with any investment, even treasury bonds, mm-hmm. right? Um, And it seems like that SVB invested in treasury bonds when rates were low. And as rates rose throughout 2022, the value of those treasury bonds decreased in value since we know that interest rates and bonds have that inverse relationship, right? So when rates go up, bond prices go down and vice versa. And we experienced such a bad bond market last year. In exactly. 2022. It was one of the worst years for bonds on record. That's right. right. So again, just to 
you know, give an example for people, you know, if I, you know, buy a treasury bond that's paying 2% and the Fed raises interest rates to 4%, there's going to be new treasury bonds issued at 4%, 4.5%, maybe even 5%. Yes. So the value of that bond that I own has to fall in terms of dollars, the price of that bond to entice investors to buy it because why would anyone want to buy a two percent bond where they can go out and buy same exact bond matures the same exact time for a higher rate exactly right so that's kind of that relationship between uh, interest rates and bond prices um so since rates were on the rise throughout much of 2022 the value as of svb's bond portfolio shrunk Yep. And a large amount of their customers are tech companies, and those companies started to withdraw money to put into higher yielding investments, meet payroll, et cetera, right? Because why would someone keep a large portion of their money in a savings or a checking account that's yielding 025 to 0.5%, or they can go buy a short-term treasury bond that's yielding 4%, right? There you go. So I think that was a lot of it. And... You know, not to mention, as you know, the rates rose throughout 2022, these tech companies were just burning through cash. And that was reflected in their stock prices and their stock price declines last year. And this kind of increased that need to withdraw cash from SVB. And they had to turn around and sell their longer term bond investments to meet customer withdrawals at a loss due to the rising rates that we discussed a little earlier. So as they were selling those bonds, they were realizing those losses. Correct. Correct. So and rightly so, these losses spooked their customers, which kind of triggered this run on the bank with many people and businesses withdrawing money. And, you know, SVB attempted to do a capital raise to, to meet the rest of their customer demands, which just further spooked investors and people that had money with them. Yep. Um, so really to kind of put a bow on this, to put it simply, you know, SVB was sending out more money than it was taking in and they had to tap into their bond portfolio while it was at a big loss to meet customer demands. Um, and again, like you alluded to earlier, 2022 was one of the worst years on, on record for bonds. So they didn't have all of that capital to return to their depositors, right? Sure. Um, a couple other interesting points that I thought it was important to note. Um, I read that approximately 97% of the accounts at SVB had a balance that exceeded the FDIC insured $250,000. So, 97%. 97%. So, Again, just to reiterate, uh, any one person can deposit $250,000 at a bank or a company, um, which is kind of mind boggling to me that the limits are the same for people and for businesses. Mm -hmm. um, and that money is insured by uh, the FDIC. So if that bank goes under that 250,000, we'll get returned to you at some point because it's insured, right? Mm -hmm. um, and, and that goes for each bank you have money with, right? So that's why a lot of people make it a good practice that if they have a large percent of their assets in cash, they have accounts at different banks up to that $250,000 level yep. so that it's insured because mm -hmm. anything above that is quote unquote not insured, right? Mm -hmm. um, so what's interesting about this situation, though, regulators stepped in and made sure that all depositors are going to have access to their money 
or had access to their money earlier this week on Monday morning to kind of restore some sort of systemic confidence in the banking system. And the government's bank deposit insurance fund is going to be covering all the deposits rather than just the 250000 FDIC insured limit. Um, so that was a positive thing that, that happened this year. But mm -hmm. also it's important to note that this is not a bailout from the government because the bondholders and stockholders of SVB are still underwater and they're not getting protected from this. Yeah, I mean, um, who knows if there's going to be anything left for either of those entities. Right, when they do an asset sale of the bank's yeah. assets, bondholders might get something and stockholders might be SOL. Yeah, you don't know. Um, so just to be clear, it is not a bailout because I have seen that term thrown around uh, a couple of times over the past week. Um, in addition to that, the central bank said it's going to make additional funding available to other banks through a new bank term funding program, which will offer loans of up to one year to banks that pledge U.S. Treasury securities, mortgage-backed securities, and other collateral. So the reason why they're doing this is so that this doesn't turn into a domino effect where everyone's scared, everyone starts to pull money out of all the banks across the country they're shoring up capital for banks to make sure they have money to give back to their customers if there is a larger run on the bank, right? So that yep. there isn't a situation that happened like SVB where they have to sell their long-term bond portfolio holdings at a significant loss. That's right. Um, so th the government is stepping in to kind of shore up uh, these banks and these customers' capital. Um, so before kind of we move on to anything else, Matt, anything else you want to add that I might have missed about this whole debacle. I think that after SVB went under in Signature Bank, it became a confidence issue for other banks. And it wasn't to say that, say, some of these smaller regional banks were in financial trouble. But if confidence is shaken, all of a sudden it, the, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have large balances of money, you're going to seek safety with that. And so um, my biggest concern is until the government uh, addresses this, you could continue to see money leave these smaller banks and go to the more what is perceived to be systematically important, too big to fail type banks. Mm -hmm. That's a concern. Yeah, the JP Morgans, Bank of America, Wells, Wells Fargo, Fargo, City, US Bank Corp. And, and in today's day and age, which I think this is what probably perpetuated this scenario is it's so easy to take money from one bank and put it in another bank. Someone put the term perfectly, Mark. It's frictionless. Yeah, it's frictionless. You could do it via Venmo, for example. Yeah. Um, so, you know, that's the thing that we'll have to see if there's if there are a couple other dominoes to fall. But I think people are going to seek safety um, in these major banks. But, you know, some people are just going to pull their money out of the banking system altogether, right? Yeah, and there's that. Um, because you see people, people pull them out of banks, put them in U.S. Treasuries, which is why the yields have dropped so much in such a quick time period. You know, those things, I think, are going to continue to happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, moving on, um, Jim Bianco, someone that I follow on Twitter, had a really good post uh, back uh, last weekend on March 12th, and I just kind of want to read through this for people. Okay. Um, he starts off by saying, which I think a lot of people have this question, this is not a solvency crisis like 2008. Bad, Nowhere near it. Bad loans or poor investments were not made. Money was not lost. So everyone is going to get their money back. 
Instead, this is an old-fashioned 1930s liquidity crisis. Too many depositors demanded cash at once, and SVB could not convert loans and securities to cash that quickly. And just pausing there for a second, Matt, we've talked about this before on the podcast of what liquidity is. And we always put it in a phrase that it's how quickly can you turn you know, an investment into grocery money or into cash, yep. right? Um, so he says everyone is getting their money back from SVB. And yes, this is a big problem as this is working capital for a lot of companies. They have payrolls to meet and vendors to pay. And if they don't pay bills and employees, this can quickly cascade into a major economic problem. The important question is why so many demanded their money back all at once. And I'm not referring to the last couple of days. I'm asking about the days and weeks leading up to these last two days forcing SVB to sell securities and realize a $1.8 billion loss necessitating a capital raise. Why were depositors withdrawing in big enough amounts before Thursday and Friday? First, welcome to the world of mobile banking. Gone are the frictions of standing in line with tellers instructed to count money slowly. How did $42 billion get withdrawn Friday alone without thousands in line? The answer is your phone. <laughs> this should scare the hell out of bankers and regulators work worldwide. The entire $17 trillion deposit base is now on a hair trigger expecting instant liquidity. And in social media and million and in social media, millions get a message from the likes of Peter Thiel telling founder companies to pull out or Senator Warren gloating that SI went under, another bank that was tied to the crypto space. Uh, and they pick up their phones and open a Chase account and Venmoed their life savings into it in 10 minutes. Instant liquidity, not solvency crisis, with everyone still in bed. Banking will never be the same. Banks are over-reserved and are still paying 0.5% on accounts when T-bills are yielding 5%. Initially, as rates passed 2 3 and 4%, the public did not notice. So bankers thought deposits were well-anchored at their bank and not moving regardless of the interest rate paid. But at 5%, the publicly finally noticed, and millions reached for the phone at once and transferred their money to a money market account or a treasury direct account to buy T-bills. Banks were squeezed to convert loans and securities into cash instantly so depositors could leave for better rates. And in the bleed out from the tech firm struggling, depositors at SVB got the message and picked up their phones and acted. So what needs to be done? Jim thinks there's two things. Number one is the FDIC needs to raise needs to raise the deposit insurance ceiling to unlimited as they did in 2008. Thank you. Which they did. Besides, 250,000 is made up a made up number anyway, so make it a bigger number. Yes. Bank number two, banks need to raise interest rates they pay to 3% to 3.5% from 0.5% immediately. Yes, this will kill bank profitability, so expect bank execs to balk at doing this. This way, the public gets the message that your money is safe, no matter the bank or the amount, and the rate paid on your money is at least competitive with other alternatives. Yes. Um, and that's a thing that, you know, we've talked about and several people have talked about for, you know, a long time is that, uh, you know, with interest rates, it's like feathers and rocket ships, right? So when interest, <laughs> when, when interest rates uh, fall... Uh, banks are, you know, immediate on the hopper to lower interest rates on their oh, savings yeah. accounts and checking accounts, right? But when interest rates rise, it's like, oh, we're going to wait a little bit. We don't necessarily want to eat into our profitability, so well we're not going to raise rates along with, you know, the Fed funds rate, for example. Well put. Um, 
so that's something that's been talked about for a really long time. And that's, and that's one of the issues that perpetuated this. Um, so I think Jim did a, a pretty good job in explaining, you know, exactly what happened and what he thinks needs to happen to kind of calm the nerves of investors and depositors. Like I said several minutes ago, until they do that, there's going to be an exodus, in my opinion, from some of these smaller um, banks. Regional banks. That's yeah. a concern of mine. Yeah, for sure. And I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, me too. Um, second thing I had was a tweet from Ophir Gottlieb on March 12th as well. Uh, so he was talking about that this isn't, you know, the first time, obviously, that this has happened. So he tweeted and said, not just tech, not just this time. 1984, Continental Illinois became insolvent, bad loans on oil and gas in Oklahoma and Texas. The Fed and FDIC feared widespread instability. To avert it, regulators prevented loss of virtually all deposits. Okay. And he tweeted a Wikipedia page about Continental Illinois that said, the Continental Illinois National Bank and Trust Company was at one time the seventh largest commercial bank in the United States okay. as measured by deposits with approximately $40 billion in assets. In 1984, Continental Illinois became the largest ever bank failure in U.S. history when a run on the bank led to its seizure by the FDIC. Continental Illinois retained this dubious distinction until the failure of Washington Mutual in 2008 during the financial crisis. Wamu. Right, which ended up being over seven times larger than the failure of Continental Illinois. Um, so again, this isn't the first time this has happened. Uh, what I think is different about 2008 is that, you know, regulators are seem like they're taking proactive measures this time rather than waiting until the aftermath to kind of clean up the mess, which is good that they're being proactive because this hasn't the first time it's happened. Um, but again, I just don't want people to think that this is going to be 2008 all over again. I'm not saying there's no chance of that, but mm -hmm. it just looks, feels, and smells very different than that. It is very, very different. And in my opinion, this is a confidence issue. You go back to 07, 08, and 09, you know, you had the banks in dire financial straits, okay? You know, this time around, it's, for the most part, in my opinion, a lot of banks are in good financial straits, but if you lose 40 plus percent of your deposits in a day like SVB did, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy at that point. Right. So going back to what I said, this is a confidence issue, and until the government can figure this out, I mean, that's going to be the problem. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And the uh, benefactor is going to be these systematically, quote unquote, these very, very, very large banks are going to be the benefactor of this. Yeah, the, the two which big is sad to to say. boys. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, because the the regional banks, you know, they usually offer better rates on their on their accounts than what you can get at a J.P. Morgan or Bank of yeah, America. Yeah, and I think the Wells understanding Fargo. is they tend to be a little more. Um, easier to work with maybe on loans for businesses. That's yeah. a perception that's out there, right? And I think that could be right more often than not. But, um, you know, if people are worried about XYZ company has, you know, $20 million in their working account for payroll, uh, you know, accounts payable, all that stuff. And, you know, are you going to keep it at that bank that everyone's moving money from? Right. And that was, you know, that was the, the, the fear last weekend is that like, you know, are they going to be able to meet payroll and, and pay their people? A lot of these companies that had money with this, yeah. this bank. So yeah. 
Um, anyways, turn it over to you. So remember how I was talking about um, how quick bonds moved over the past week? Remember we talked about that a couple minutes ago? Mm -hmm. So I have uh, some research from Bespoke on uh, March 13th, Mark. I'm going to quote, there's been quite a number of crazy looking charts out there showing the extreme moves in the credit and equity markets over the past several days. But here are two more that stack right up with the others. Early last week, comments from Fed Chair Powell shifted market expectations <coughs> for the Fed funds rate in March from a 25 basis point hike to a 50 basis point hike. And in plain English, 0.25% to 0.5% raise in interest rates. The events of the last few days have not only taken the 50 basis point hike off the table, but the market isn't even sure that there will be a 25 basis point hike next week on March 22nd. As of Monday morning, future markets were only pricing in a two in three chance of a 25 basis point hike at the next FOMC meeting. The chart, which Jenna will put up for our YouTube viewers, and this will be in our show notes, this chart is going to show the abrupt shift we have seen in market expectations for Fed policy over the next week. Using prices in the Fed funds futures market, the dark blue line shows where the money, I'm sorry, where the market was pricing Fed fund futures between now and January of 2024, a week ago, versus where those expectations are today. And I'm, I'm gonna pause for a second. The reason I wanted to show this, listeners and viewers, is because as Mark talked about how much these bond rates have come in, we have to be cognizant that this is gonna affect what the Fed does with monetary policy now. Okay, I'll continue. While expectations have dropped modestly for the near-term policy rate levels, going further out, the market has been quickly taking rate hikes out of the forecast and actually adding in rate cuts, Mark. Just a week ago, markets were pricing in a bit more than two 25 basis point rate hikes, but today they're pricing in two and a half cuts by the end of the year, okay? So this chart's very telling, okay? Now, I got one more chart. Jenna will put this up for our YouTube viewers, and this is gonna be available in our show notes. The chart next shows the five-day change in the price of the Fed Fund Futures contract. Higher price equals lower yield and vice versa, going back to 1991, Mark. With the contract rallying 1.06% in a span of a week, the current move ranks as the fifth largest five-day rally, okay? I'm sorry, let me repeat myself because I said that wrong. The current move ranks as the largest five-day rally since 1991. In other words, the market has priced in more easing on a net basis over the last week than in any other one-week period in 32 years. In addition to conducting monetary policy, quote, to promote maximum employment, stable prices, and moderate long-term in interest rates, the Fed is also charged with, Mark, promoting the stability of the financial system. So I'm highlighting this because next week, when Powell is doing that press conference on March 22nd, Everyone knows the dual mandate of the Fed, right? Maximum employment, 2% inflation. Those things are going to get set aside for, and I quote, the stability of the financial system. 
So I'll be curious whether they do a quarter or they don't raise at all personally. I, I, that's a nothing burger for the market given what's happened over the past week. I think what's more important is what he talks about their emphasis, importance, responsibility to stabilizing the financial system. Mm -hmm. And you're starting to see a focus on this right now. And I'll be curious what he says next Wednesday. Yeah. Yeah, it's going to be um, interesting for sure. And, you know, we were over the past couple of weeks, you know, just talking internally about starting to see signs of the Fed stopping their rate hike cycle. And, you know, this just might be the, you know, the canary that does that. Yeah, they pushed it as far as they could. They broke something. Okay, yep. can't go any farther. And people have been talking about that for a year now. They're like, the Fed's going to break something. The Fed's going to break something. Oh, the Fed's going to keep what going until they be? break something. Right. And this is what happened. So the uh, last comment I have kind of on, the, on that same kind of wavelength is, you know, I think they can continue to control this by how long they pause. You know, you've, you've raised rates a lot. You know, they could pause for an extended period of time and still, in my opinion, achieve continuing to bring inflation in. So that's just, I want to throw that out there. Yeah. Okay. Next piece I have, um, a lot of reasons over history not to invest, Mark. This is a tweet by Peter Mullick, and that is from March 9th. This is a post he had. And what happens is, is he showed in different decades, Mark, different things that have occurred going back to the 1940s. Mm -hmm. Lots of reasons to get out of the market, right? 1940s, World War II, 60s and 70s, Vietnam War, <laughs> 70s and 80s, hyperinflation, 70s and 80s, commodity crisis. In the 80s, the real estate and banking collapse. In the 80s, the emerging market crisis. 1987 flash crash. In the 90s, the Asian contagion crisis. 2000 tech, tech bubble burst. 01, you got 9-11 and subsequent Afghanistan and Iraqi wars. 08 and 09, the GFC, the global, I call it the great financial crisis. They mm -hmm. called it here the global financial crisis. 2020s, you know, coronavirus pandemic, high inflation. And at the bottom, S&P 500 annualized total return 1940 to 2022, 10.9% compounding annualized rate of return. Mm -hmm. So this is a reminder that the returns you get in the market, there's a sacrifice you have to have to get those returns. And it's going through time periods like not only the last couple of weeks, but the last 12 to 18 months that the market has struggled. And I think as you start to step back and your time horizon's more realistic, yes, over time, the market tends to do good. But there's a byproduct you have to sacrifice for that. And it's seeing those ups and downs. And this is a nice reminder about that. Yeah. And it's time like this, times like these where it just seems like things are never going to get any better. Um, and it's, it's, in my opinion, it's made it worse this time around just because of the, the low volatile environment that we were in really since the financial crisis up until 2020. Well said. Um, well said. Without any major pullbacks, there was one negative year from 2000 or from 2009 to 2022. And if we had pullbacks, they're relatively quick recoveries. That was in 2018 uh, and the market was only down four and a half percent. Every other year since the great financial crisis, the markets have been positive. 
Yeah, Q4 2018 was bad, and it made it back in, what, four, four and a half months? Yeah, so so it, it feels abnormal for this to be happening right now, and people are wondering if this is ever going to get back on track. In the length of the recovery. Yeah, and, you know, the questions that, that we're getting and other advisors are getting and economists and money managers alike are, you know, what's what's going to happen within the next six months? And I know some people probably feel this at sometimes might feel like we or other people in the industry are deflecting but all of this stuff that we talked about matt this happened in a two-week period so it is virtually in my opinion impossible to give someone a good idea of what's going to happen over the next three to even six months because things move so quickly and we've talked time and time again before on this podcast that risk is what you don't see it is stuff that is not in the headlines until it is and that's what happened with silicon valley bank but the reason why i say all that is you know you just went through all the way from the 40s to the 2020s and every decade there was something to be concerned about and over the long term markets have done 10.9 percent from 1940 to 2022 so i know some people might feel like investment advisors, wealth managers, financial advisors are deflecting or just saying, hey, you know, we're in it for the long term, we're in it for the long term. But this data proves that. And it's really hard to try to figure out where markets are going to be in a week, in a couple months from now. But over the long term, it becomes much more predictable. And as long as we're in it for the long term, then we can have confidence in talking clients through this and say, hey, these are all the things that have happened over the past 10 decades and look where we are. That's right. And you combine everything you said and you said it perfectly, Mark. You're coming off a bad year in 2022. You add all those statistics. You talk about being, you know, the third year of the presidential election cycle. You start adding all these things. Corporate earnings behind the scenes and fundamentals in general are relatively good compared to history. There's a lot of things that, you know, I don't think that things are as bad as it feels right now. Yeah. But you got to have a proper time horizon. Right. Right. Well said. Mm -hmm. Well, I have a good way to kind of end this. Okay. I got some humor and I want to thank our friend Ben Carlson for this. Okay. This is a tweet that he had on March 13th. I'm going to read it quote for quote. You ready? Sure, maybe rising interest rates from 0 to 5% in a year caused a financial crisis. But the good news now is the Fed has plenty of room to lower rates again to start the next bubble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's pretty good. <laughs> oh, that was good. And we're already starting to see that. I mean, me and you were talking last night and, you know, as over the past year, year and a half, as the Fed was removing liquidity from the system, reducing their balance sheet, over the past two weeks, they've undone a lot of that already. They've undone over four months of um, tightening in a week or two. Mm -hmm. And what does that mean? They're providing liquidity to the system. Like we talked about, they have this short-term one-year loan program that these banks can pledge securities to the Fed and they provide liquid cash, right? Good way of saying it. There's a lot Um, of liquidity in the system compared to the last couple of months. So that's viewed as adding to their balance sheet, which is increasing liquidity or some other people call it QE or quantitative easing. It's it's, where just two weeks ago, we were in a tightening cycle. Yes. And people, you know, on Wall Street... They are programmed. They see this. They see money getting injected into the system. 
they're getting giddy right now over this. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't know how many pieces of research I saw last night talking exactly about what you just said. The fact that they reversed over four months of monetary tightening, they injected this money into the system, and uh, a lot of traders are getting pumped up about this. Yeah, so it's gonna be interesting to see how the market reacts next week um, as we get closer and closer to the end of the quarter. And obviously with the Fed and, and Powell, uh, you know, making their rate hike or no hike decision next week. So that's gonna More be- More importantly, what he says in that press conference. So it's next Wednesday, it March 22nd, 2 p.m. East Coast time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think we'll leave it there, Matt. It was a lot of information. Yeah, for I think it was a great podcast. Um, Listener questions, send them our way. I know that there might be a lot of questions yeah. uh, uh, regarding this topic. Uh, it might be on a, a subject matter that we weren't able to address today due to our time constraints. But, you know, listeners and viewers, send them our way. Uh, inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com is the email address. You can also uh, leave a comment on any of our social media sites to this uh, podcast post, and we will address it in next week's podcast. Yes, we will. Yeah. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us for episode number 192. Hope you all have a great weekend. Happy St. Patrick's Day, and we'll be back with you next week. And I hope your brackets don't get busted. <laughs> Thank you for listening to the Independent Advisors podcast. If you're interested in hearing more, hit the subscribe button so you can be notified every time a new episode gets released. Feel free to share with friends, family, and follow us on Twitter at Jessup Wealth, Facebook, and LinkedIn. Mark and Matt will continue to share beneficial information on these social media sites. Also, check out the podcast tab on their website. That's www.jessupwealthmanagement.com. There you'll find links to every episode of the Independent Independent advisors have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show message us on Twitter LinkedIn or send an email with the words questions and topics in the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com we'll talk about it right here on the podcast certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations estimates projections and assumptions forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. All indices are unmanaged and are not available for direct investment by the public. Past performance is not indicative of future results. This podcast is provided for general informational purposes only and does not constitute either tax, legal, or financial advice. Although we do go to great lengths to make sure our information is accurate and useful, we recommend you consult a tax preparer, professional tax advisor, financial advisor, or lawyer regarding your specific circumstances. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.